back to another episode of Rolled Up Season 2. Once again, joining me as my co-pilot for the intro segment is Colin Davidson. Not only is Colin my best friend, he is a mathematician in the CPG space and one of two co-hosts of another podcast on the Rolled Up Network, Bricks and Clicks. Colin, how are you doing on this fine day? Great. Just sitting here with my cool water beverage. Looking forward to talking today about the beverage space. Is it uh, carbonated or flat or still? It is flat and cold might have been an overstatement. We're approaching lukewarm, I think. Lukewarm? That's the best kind of warm because it sounds like my kind of temperature. <laughs> anyway, I don't think we're funny enough for, for jokes, so we should stick to, to the facts. We are talking about the beverage space and you have some really interesting just stats and, and nuances that kind of separate beverages from the rest of the CPG space. In the beverage space, um, and we've worked on several different brands in this part of the store. We were just talking about this before we started recording. It really seems like people are searching for variety in beverage more than in other categories. And the variety that they're searching for is changing on a, at a fairly fast pace. So I'm sipping water. You've probably got some water nearby. Everyone drinks water. I think everyone drinks coffee or some caffeine delivery system. And those are pretty much the ones that everyone drinks. After that, it gets a little, a little tricky of alcohol, the sober curious moving cocktails, IPAs, Rieslings, wines. It, it gets crowded and different fast kombuchas there's uh forgot about booch yeah the booch is real big right now there it is i love the booch different sugary sodas different non-sugary sodas you got your sparkling waters there's uh, some chia based beverages probably missing a whole bunch of different segments so, so chia is that like the the chia plant from the 90s that's the one so again this is a shift mama chia is a, a really I think the pioneering brand in the space and um, we worked with them for a while, a few years ago, you can just really see how items that are really, really strong sellers in the category start to get pushed to the sides by these emerging segments. So like kombucha was one thing that when that came in, any retailers and buyers that are stocking the set, they wanted to fill up with as many different kombuchas as they can get. Cause that's what people were buying then. Mm-hmm. And you just see this a lot where a new beverage comes out, it gets really hot and starts displacing the existing ones. Now we see this in all categories, but it just seems to happen at a much more rapid pace in beverage. That's really interesting. And what do you think the reason for that is, as people shift their, their flavors? I mean, we saw two, three years ago, White Claw was just the hottest drink you could get. And now it's all cocktails, cocktails, cocktails. Yeah. yeah. And White Claw, actually, the other day I was in a, specialty convenience store. And I actually saw a wine brand from Napa Valley, Sonoma area here in California. And they had a seltzer. I was really surprised to see that. I always joke about sharing my podcast with your mother-in-law, but it sounds like everyone's mother-in-law now has a seltzer brand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not to derail, totally derail your, your train of thought there. Yeah. But so you're in the convenience store and you see this classic Napa Valley wine company, all of a sudden they have seltzers. Speaking to that seltzer bandwagon, everyone jumped on it and it gets diluted pretty quickly. It's a little water humor there for you. I think your your question before was, what's driving this 
quick churn in consumer demands. And I don't have a, a, a great explanation, but I have a hypothesis. I think we're just fickle, like, especially when we're sipping on something, right? It, it's such a low barrier to entry that you can just go grab something interesting. And again, we drink water. We need water. Uh, most of us need coffee. And then we want something else fun. That thing that is fun is usually fun because it's novel. So we want to try something new and exciting. And then we stick it with for a while and it becomes regular. And once it's your go-to, you kind of lose the excitement. So we're always searching for that new, exciting option to have on hand. Which I think is why we've seen the rise of so many different drink brands like Olipop coming up fast on the the non-alcoholic side. And by the way, dilution is also a Silicon Valley joke. <laughs> Got it all. You did. Speaking of Silicon Valley jokes and beverages, Harmless Harvest was one of the one other brand that we had worked with. And uh, the Silicon Valley joke there was that they're the most expensive organic coconut water on the market today. Or as I like to say, the most premium organic most premium, yes. coconut water. Because like the CEO of Red Bull said, if we don't charge more, nobody's going to know it's better. Exactly. And I, they, they really are the best. But they were, And they were pretty early in that this space of, I don't think they were the first coconut water, but they were definitely the first premium coconut water. Um, if you've seen them, they've got that pink hue to them, which is something very specific to the young coconuts that they use from Thailand. So you need to have really, really high quality young coconuts to get this. And so they will not sacrifice on quality. But what happens is that they become successful. Then you start to see all the Me Too brands come in, right? They take over a big chunk of this cooler space. And I wouldn't be surprised now to see that that space is shrinking again as more new and exciting brands. I wouldn't be either. And I think that is a great time to plug your show, Bricks and Clicks. You can get it wherever you are listening to podcasts, a little bit more analytical on the retail side. But until then, enjoy my interview with Fresh Paul of Freshly. You know, if you don't have a million or more, maybe even less than that in your bank account, and you want to bootstrap this from A to Z, it is very, very difficult. You know, founded freshly in the beginning of the, the pandemic, and, you know, there's been some moments where you ask yourself, what did I get myself into? But there are so many other options on the market that, you know, founders can utilize to essentially build and scale their brand. Welcome back to another episode of season two rolled up. That was myself and Colin on the intro. Joining me today is founder who got his start during the pandemic after a great career in tech at large multi-billion dollar companies to startups running and scaling their customer success teams, which could be a topic for a totally different podcast or even its own show. Paul Owusu, aka Paul Miller, you might have seen him online, started freshly. He was experimenting with cocktails while kind of figuring out what to do as a house husband, as he uh, as he likes to jokingly refer to himself, and really figure out what he wanted to do to go back into tech, driving customer success, or take that customer success and bring it to, I don't want to say something more fun than enterprise software, but 
given the choice, watch an enterprise software demo or have a few delicious cocktails that somebody else made, I think everyone is going to go for the cocktail. So that's how Paul came to start freshly. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Some of the challenges and opportunities that came with launching that business. Paul, thank you so much for making some time to join me. Thank you very much, Lucas. Happy to be here. Oh, my pleasure. And how was my intro? Did I, did I hit on everything? What did I miss? You nailed it, especially the name part. Oh, thank you all. <laughs> well, that's because it's our little secret between you, myself, and MLR producer. It took me about eight tries when the mics weren't recording. So that's why I've said, AKA Paul Miller, but let's jump into it. So I know that you had started with uh, some enterprise software and you had helped some CPG brands kind of streamline their finances and scale faster. What led you to take that experience and go into selling alcohol online? Because I joke and may have said it last season with Kara Golden, the founder of Hint, selling beverages online, it's just, I don't know if I could do it, man. It's just <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know. It's If I wanted to lose my money, uh, maybe, but there are just so many challenges that, that come with selling beverages, let alone alcohol. So I'd love to hear about some of those challenges that that do make it an opportunity because it does make it a little bit more difficult. So there is less competition, but I would just love to hear about selling alcohol online, especially uh, during a pandemic. Yes. Thank you so much um, for that. Um, I think, as you mentioned, selling alcohol is extremely difficult. This is an industry that hasn't changed much since the prohibition era. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, wearing from going from uh, wearing, you know, border hats to, uh, now, being able to order things directly from your phone and this industry hasn't changed much. So if you look at, you know, America as a whole, each state has their own regulatory and, uh, and also regulatory body. California has their own. Um, well, so no, but it's true because where the Jack Daniels distillery is, it's actually a dry county. So you can't, yes. they can't have their Jack Daniels experiential bar that you would think you go visit Jack Daniels. Let's have every flavor of Jack Daniels and, and cocktail imaginable. They have to sell souvenir bottles that it comes in so you can take it home. Absolutely. Um, which also goes back into why there is such an influx of you know, new salsa brands every time you open Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. It's less salsa everything because once you move into more of the spirits-based business, you come across so many regulations. And of course, you know, how do you get distribution into certain states? Uh, here's a perfect example. I visited my co-founders uh, in Atlanta and, you know, we're like, hey, let's make some cocktails. So as a California boy, I go to Whole Foods thinking I can find something there. And I wasn't able to until I asked, you know, my colleagues and say, hey, I'm at Whole Foods. There's nothing here. And they're like, oh, we forgot to tell you. There's Georgia and you have to go to specific places to get this, right? This not only sort of like pushes away specific consumer markets um, who are looking for something but can't find it in the stores that they typically shop at. But there's a really good opportunity for, you know, direct-to-consumer brands who are popping up everywhere to have this, you know, opportunity to be able to ship to those customers in those states, therefore opening up a new uh, wave of ways to uh, get this done without having to go through, you know, the typical traditional channels, um, you know, like distribution uh, and sort of uh, things like that. And what would some of those channels be versus 
traditional distribution. And uh, where I'm sort of going is with this is when you go to Freshly.com, you have to put in your age. So it's not like selling any product. It's not like if you had a a powdered mix for seltzer water that you could just sell wherever. Maybe there's some regulatory restrictions. But what surprised you when it came to selling alcohol online? And hopefully it surprised you before you did it and you didn't have a uh, a big, fat, juicy fine or whatever the, in- the enforcement would be. But what's something that really surprised you about selling alcohol online? Yes. What really surprised me was in the beginning, we were talking to our current co-packer and of course from Malaysian House, right? And all of, you know, all of our, of us. Uh, so myself, my two co-founders, Ahmed and Ty, were like, wait, I think we're missing something here. This seems too straightforward. And as it turns out, yes, we were missing something, which was all of the TTV regulations, which says, you know, what can you say on the can? What can you say on your website? You know, what information can you also disclose to the consumers that are buying your product? So outside of that, you then have to think about your overall sort of distribution, specifically as it comes to licensing, because you cannot go and sell to Whole Foods directly. You have to go through a distribution channel. In our case, because we're so new, as you know, white combinator says it, you know, uh, freely do things that don't scale. We decided we're going to do these things ourselves. Luckily, we have um, an in-house attorney, which is my wife, basically, yeah. um, helping us figure out all these regulatory things, you know, all the different languages to make sure that we get this done. Now, not a lot of upcoming brands have this opportunity to have someone, you know, in their home helping them figure this out. Um, and so the other channels that they can go through is, you know, for example, like a GoPuff, you know, in California, they acquired BevMo, they have 145 stores. So if you partner with somebody like that, then you get to have distribution and visibility in these stores. But what really surprised me was, you know, how archaic this industry is when it comes to regulations. And what are some of the regulations when it comes to selling alcohol online across borders are there different states obviously uh, i doubt you can sell back to your home country of uh, of ghana or uk where you made a quick pit stop during your life before coming to the the us or maybe maybe not so quick but what about state to state or even county to county does that factor into what you can and can't do yes it definitely does um here's a perfect example we are registered in the state of georgia Georgia permits direct-to-consumer wine sales by businesses with special ownership and license. And then we have customers who are coming from, you know, Delaware. Delaware prohibits, you know, direct shipment of alcohol. Connecticut um, allows businesses with manufacturer permits. So you have to actually have a farm in order to sell. So it really, really varies from state to state. So as a new brand, you really, one, do not have the money available to register in all these states. Um, Therefore, you have to find ways to be able to distribute. Uh, This is where the distribution channels are very much important, Mm -hmm. um, specifically within your direct-to-consumer strategy. Um, And so in our case, we decided who can we partner up with to give us, you know, both um, visibility uh, and also help us learn from who our consumers are uh, in a different state. Wow. Like that just makes my head hurt thinking about (laughs) it. Like how much of you doing the work constitutes manufacturing if you do the formulations the the package design mm-hmm. uh, even everything up to bottling or if you do just the bottling does that count it's such a gray area of what they let you do and what they what they don't let you you do absolutely yes and even in, in the current climate 
if you go to your favorite grocery store uh, and you bought, you know, an RTD beverage, there's a couple of things that you're going to find that and they all vary from, you know, brand to brand. Some brands would, you know, tell you what exactly is in your cocktail. Some others would just put on your logo and basically goodbye, go home, drink it. Let us know how that tastes. Right. Uh, and this is all because of the regulations. And so what we learned very quickly was, wait, how come brand A versus brand X, you know, this brand has everything on, on their cans, the call outs, and then this other brand is just sort of like a very fancy logo, nothing else. Uh, and then quickly we we learn this is due to the regulations and what they can call out. And also, even if you have to do these call outs on the packaging design, that in itself costs money. So sometimes, you know, most companies decide, you know what, let's just do the, the logo and then forego of everything else. Yeah. Or even any sort of regulatory sticker or certification. And Absolutely. that's a nice little transition into things like, so for, for my business, we had the MSC certification, which if you've seen Seaspiracy on Netflix, I'm sure you're very familiar with the, the organization, but like that's another die plate and it has to be with their specifications or they slap you on the wrist and say, nope, do it again. Then you have to, if you're big enough, you would have to be in a position where you're throwing out all your packaging and just really trying to, to get it so it, it matches, but still looks good, which is the challenge of making something very busy look look good. Exactly. So I think that's a nice little segue into the other aspect that we were talking about, which is the the finances of running a a beverage business. So without giving away too much of your your IP, I'd love to just hear what that looks like in a why that's so important to to really understand your finances to let you scale. And I'd love to just poke uh, poke you with some questions as they come up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the financing piece is very, very important, right? What we did in the beginning was we're going to bootstrap this and get to profitability before we start raising money. But it's also the curiosity part of all of my co-founders because we all worked in tech, which was let's get to the no. The reason why we wanted to get to the know was we wanted to learn, you know, what investors wanted to invest in uh, and things we need to do before we get to that first million dollar check. So we started going to a few angels and whatnot. And we were like, hey, we're looking to raise $4 million. And, you know, kindly they told us, all right, go away. Uh, you're not ready yet, right? You're too early for us. Some of them, though, were very kind enough to say, how are you thinking about your omnichannel strategy? Uh, so on the revenue side, how do we do both retail and wholesale so we can expand on that? And we're like, okay, all right, write that down. Let's do this. But specifically, you know, if you don't have a million or more, maybe even less than that in your bank account, and you want to bootstrap this from A to Z, it is very, very difficult. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning of this, you know, founded firstly in, you know, in the beginning of the, the pandemic. And, you know, there's been some moments where you ask yourself, what did I get myself into? But there are so many other options on the market that, you know, founders can utilize to essentially build and scale their brand. And that's interesting that I knew the numbers were big. I didn't realize, and I shouldn't be surprised that it's that big of really having a million bucks in the bank. And that's just, that's just to get started. Like you said, ideally it was 4 million. So how does a brand that's just starting out with not necessarily the, the background in CPG or, or alcohol, where can they look to get some of that financing? Yes, that's a really good question. I think, you know, there is a lot of angels who can take a look at what you're building and say, you know what, the proof points are already there. Um, this is already a proven market. 
we will invest in you, right? Proven that they really believe in your vision. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, there are also ways that, you know, people can finance their businesses. So, you know, specifically you can use uh, one platform that we use that at Freshly is called Settle. What Settle does is they essentially, um, you know, help you uh, be more capital efficient. Uh, and so we leverage Settle to, you know, finance um, all of our initial costs. Um, specifically with our co-packers uh, and then getting things done. And so, you know, the really good thing about, you know, that product is you can upload an invoice. Uh, what Soto will do is they'll pay your vendor on your behalf uh, and then you pay them a, a small fee. What I really like about this option is it allows us to say, hey, we're going to continue bootstrapping while leveraging this platform to our best abilities. Therefore, we can get to, you know, a bigger valuation at a later time. So we don't have to necessarily raise money right now. Now, some other brands could say, you know what, I do not want to do this. Um, I just want to continue bootstrapping or just go raise, you know, a seed round now and then maybe series A round. It's really up to you and what you want to do. But I think for most indie brands or even established brands, the best way to scale your brand is, you know, leverage, you know, what other inventory financing platforms are available to you um, so you can able, be able to, to scale and, and build quickly. When it comes to financing, because that's something that I've, I don't know, for better or for worse, I've never done and gone out and gotten a bunch of financing really early on. What would you say is important to to show or bring with you as you're looking to to raise that capital? Yeah, so really understanding the total addressing market outside of your what your market looks like too is specifically focusing on a lot of the the proof points. Um, and I'll use Freshly as an example. Mm -hmm. We leverage every single data point that we had. So surveys with customers, doing taste testing with people, understanding what people are looking for to the point where we decided to do um, sort of a lot of data mining across multiple social media platforms. So we leverage you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest to understand what flavors are people searching for, right? So did somebody search for hibiscus? Uh, did somebody search for, you know, moringa? Um, you know, what colors are they looking for to see in their cocktails? So in seeing this, we decided, okay, this is where we want to go and not just build something that we thought people were going to love because we truly wanted to build something that is supported by data uh, and also where the market is going. Because I think, you know, millennials aren't just looking for highly Instagrammable posts anymore of anything that they're consuming, right? They want something that is really better for them. Uh, and also they can, you know, totally brag about. Uh, and also just really enjoy if you're at a party and you had, you know, four fresh leaves, nobody's going to look at you funny. So to answer your question more specifically is understanding the business that you're getting into, getting more proof points on. This is why what we're doing is very much more interesting than what other brands are doing. Um, and also just really leveraging a lot of sort of like partnership you know, agreements that you can get in your back pocket so you can totally sort of talk about it. Importantly is, you know, the future of e-commerce, I think, is marketplaces. So the multi-brand checkout, how do you get your brand in different marketplaces so more consumers can learn about it? So to have all these while talking to investors, for them to see these proof points is very, very much more important and it is very helpful. That's so so much more eloquent and well articulated than than how I've tried to say some of the same things, especially uh, marketplaces and and multi brand checkouts. As we wrap it up, Paul, what's in the future for for Freshly? If you closed your eyes and you're thinking five seven years years from now, the business is is healthy and in a great spot. What is it? What does that look like? What what's making your mouths kind of curve up and start to smile as you envision the future? 
Yeah, I think the future of Freshly is really expanding this, you know, category that we're in, right? Uh, as mentioned earlier, everybody is doing the salsa brands. We wanted to build a better for you cocktail that puts you back at, you know, that, you know, fancy rooftop bar or social club that you went to. Because if you are at these places, you're not there for margarita or Mai Tai, right? You're looking for a more sophisticated flavor within a cocktail. And that is what exactly we're looking to do. You know, seven, five years from now, I think it's becoming not just a household name, but the go-to social drink um, that people truly love and enjoy. Uh, and of course, as we continue to build and scale, you know, uh, introducing more flavors that, you know, we have uh, in our safe that we we can't wait for people to taste. But, you know, myself, my co-founders knew nothing about this industry. And we came in, you know, bootstrapped to the ground, wanting to learn everything, leveraging every single network that we have to understand what's happening in the market and building something that people truly love and can't wait to, to taste. And that is super exciting for us and can't wait um, to continue building on this. I love that. And to wrap it up, what advice or what, what little bit of wisdom would you give to anyone who's entering a category which they don't have that that expertise? I think you might have hinted at it a little bit just with really networking. But what would you say that that one thing you hope uh, an entrepreneur who listens to this gets inspired to to start their own business? What, what are you hoping that they take away? Resiliency and attention to detail. Don't let anything up. I think you're going to, you know, get on Twitter and Instagram and you're going to see that brand that you want to be like, just raised tons of money. Uh, and you're going to say to yourself, oh God, you know, I, you know, they, they're winning at this. I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Win anyways. That is the thing. Our thing is we're not waiting for anybody to celebrate us. We're going to celebrate ourselves and we're going to continue building this until it gets to a point where people go, oh, this is a brand that I've talked to the founder before. And I want our customers too, to really feel as though when they open a can of Freshly, it's their best friend's company. But my advice to people is, you know, one, understand the market, don't let up, continue just going, you know, you're going to face adversities, but mm -hmm. I think resiliency is the, is the true winner when it comes to that thing you want to build. And when you don't let up, it's just keep going, keep building, kick ass. I love that. I love that. Well, Paul, and I hope you don't mind if I call you Fresh Paul with a PH. <laughs> Not at all. Funny enough, uh, it used to be my Twitter handle. Yeah. Um, changed it and now it's a company. Oh, even better. <laughs> uh, even better. Well, Fresh Paul, where can people find you if you're not drinking a cocktail somewhere? Yes, uh, freshly.co at the moment uh, and pre-order will ship to your doorstep late this spring. If you wanted to be uh, our best friends and take the relationship further, um, go to our Instagram, freshly.co, and that's freshly with a PH, and same uh, on Twitter as well. One of the ways you can tell a brand has made it is when they start advertising at sporting events. During the hockey playoffs, I remember seeing a hush weighted blankets ad on the seats, the tarps, because they weren't letting fans into the stadiums yet. The next day, I logged into LinkedIn and there were the founders standing in front of their giant, essentially billboard ad the day before. And I'd seen it on TV and there's just something surreal about being able to go to their website and know them one to one while the industry's still growing. 
One thing that's as common as advertising at sporting events is drinks. That's why I think Paul Miller's Freshly will do so well. People want more than just the, the same beers their dads have drank at sporting events. They want wine, cocktails, and craft beers. But go back a generation or two, and that wasn't always the case. I'm pretty sure it was the last time the Leafs won a series in the playoffs sometime in the 90s. They showed some highlights, and nobody in the crowd was wearing a jersey or a hat or a sweater, let alone all kind of collaboration and creative merchandise options there are today. And if you were to look in their cups, it would probably be one of a handful of big-name beers like Budweiser or Molson. Budweiser and beers in general are no stranger to sports and baseball. Obviously, you have the Milwaukee Brewers, named after a profession as a team, but you also have the St. Louis Cardinals in the hometown of Anheuser-Busch, the makers of Budweiser. And it's the same family, the Bush family, that owns Budweiser that also owns the St. Louis Cardinals. So back in the 1950s, when they were building a new stadium, they wanted to name it Budweiser Stadium, Budweiser Gardens. But they weren't allowed to do that because they couldn't sell the naming rights to an alcohol company. What they did next was genius. They named the stadium after their family name, Bush Gardens, Bush Stadium. And it's still called Bush Stadium today. I think they're on the third iteration. A few years later, they launched a beer, Bush Beer, after their family name which allowed them to have a stadium with the same name as a beer. That bell means it's quitting time. I hope you've got a cold one ready to crack or something rolled up, burrito or other. Make sure you're subscribed for the next episode of Rolled Up wherever you get your podcasts.